Well, good morning, and welcome back to our uh, sermon series on 1 Timothy. Um, we're going to continue right where Luke left off, where he so uh, ably left us in the qualifications of elders last week. And uh, he had a whole two verses, and I get the privilege of three verses this week. So <laughs> we're, uh, we're going to start there. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles. Most of you, I'm sure, are already there. And uh, I'm going to start and, uh, right at the top of chapter 3, and we're going to read all the way through um, verse 5. 1 Timothy 3.1 This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And that's our section for today. And I want to point out something right away, is that Last uh, two verses, verses 1 and 2, list a bunch of positive character qualities that a bishop or an elder, uh, the leaders of the church, must have. Um, and notice it lists them out, blameless, husband of one wife, temperate, and so on. Those are all positive character attributes that a leader must have. This week, we look at, for the most part, character attributes that he's not supposed to have. So you notice that the word not is in verses 3 through 5, uh, six times, five times it's listed right before an attribute that that leader is supposed to avoid. So that's what we're covering this week, uh, things to avoid if, uh, in the character of a leader uh, if, someone's, uh, if, you're, if a church is looking at who's qualified. If he has these things, he's not qualified to be a leader. Um, so that's what we're going to look at this week. So let's start in verse 3 with the first not. It says, not given to wine. Well, that one's pretty straightforward. Not given to wine. In, in other words, not a, not a drunkard. Uh, we know from uh, other biblical passages that um, the Lord does not prohibit any con uh, consumption of alcohol at all, but there are numerous places in the Scriptures that prohibit being drunk. And um, one of those is found in Ephesians 5. Uh, in verse 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the idea there is that if you're drunk... You're controlled by the alcohol. Your inhibitions are gone. Your uh, good judgment is all gone. And while it might be you who's doing these things, um, more than likely making a fool out of themselves, it's still you, but you're not in control of your own actions. And that's uh, specifically what we're called not to be. We're called to be in control of our own actions. There's lots of verses that talk about self-control as being one of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, but the greater idea is there is that 
One is to be filled with the Spirit. And that means that um, to be in a right uh, fellowship with the Lord, having a life uh, free and clear of sin, and, being, and listening to the Holy Spirit's input into our own lives, and being under His control in, in our actions, and our thoughts, and our words. It's, um, it's very much top-to-bottom control. It's not just a, a, a quiet voice. It's my thoughts are governed into thoughts of God, into thoughts of submission to Him. My words out of my mouth are gracious and uh, wise and loving and comforting. And my actions are not hurtful towards anyone, but are caring and considerate. Top to bottom, demonstrating that the Lord is in control of your life and His character attributes can be clearly seen. Which is, of course, completely the opposite of being drunk with wine. Um, and you can, th- you can obviously see that a elder, someone who's in leadership, that has no control over himself, has great opportunity for damage to the body of Christ. Um, not only by his actions while he's drunk, but also in his example towards the other people in the church who look up to him and who follow him. If, it, if an elder is drunk, he can't say, don't be drunk. You know, if he himself at the time is drunk or very recently was, it gives no weight to his words. It counteracts what he says. Um, and if, if an elder is to be spiritually leading the body and say, be filled with the Spirit, follow the Lord's leading in your life, and yet he's following the chaos of alcohol, <clears throat> how, how is that? That's uh, not good. There's also a, verse, a few verses in Proverbs 31 that I'd like to share, uh, verses 4 and 5. Uh, it says, it is not for kings, oh, Lemuel, uh, Lemuel is the, the speaker who's re- receiving um, advice from his mother. It says, not for kings, oh, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. And there's a, a precedent there set way back in the Proverbs that alcohol perverts justice. It clouds judgment. And how is someone who's called into um, giving someone guidance or to distinguish between two parties who are grieved, how is he supposed to get, give just, uh, just judgment if his own faculties are clouded and confused? Um, and so that's why there's such a strong calling for leaders to not have their senses confused, confused to not be controlled by alcohol. And in the very sense of this verse... Um, I was looking it up that um, when it says not given to, to wine here in 1 Timothy, uh, there's a sense of um, uh, not near wine. And in other words, he's always in physical proximity near you know, to intoxicating drink. And that's something that must utterly be put away um, from a leader in the church. All right, second one. It says not violent, and the the connotation here is someone. Uh, the word literally means a striker, someone who strikes other people or a, or a bully. And you, we can see how harmful that would be for someone who's called to exhibit the gr- fruits of the sh- spirit 
and be self-controlled at all times, if he's prone to outbursts of anger, to striking people, to bullying people, to making others do his will by violent means, you can see how much harm that would cause to a church as that uh, person loses all the respect of anyone who would follow him. Um, And indeed, uh, anger has far-reaching ramifications. If someone has an outburst of anger, it's loud, it's public. And uh, often, not only will the person that's yelled at be greatly offended, and rightfully so, but the noise tends to carry, as it were. And um, they'll tell someone else, and, and, and these things get heard and recognized, and they really can bring down a church um, anger one member towards another. It's, it's bad enough if anyone in the church has a quarrel with anyone else, but for a leader to be voicing anger uh, at a situation, um, I think of uh, a bishop, one of, the, one of the meanings of the word is a shepherd, and you can just imagine out in a field there's a sheep who's straying where somewhere he ought not to be, and the shepherd bursts out into anger and is yelling at this poor sheep and striking it. Well, the poor sheep, <laughs> you know, you can't, it's going to run away in terror rather than being helpfully guided by the shepherd. And so the elders are called not to lash out at the sheep in anger, but to guide them and comfort them. Right? Just like David says in Psalm 23, he says, your rod and your staff Right? They comfort me. Not they strike me and wound me, but it, the rod and the staff, they comfort me. And that's what an elder is called to be gentle. Um, in fact, that's one of the words we're getting there in a moment. Um, also, I want to point out that um, it says in Ephesians that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger. And one of the... Um, one of the best ways to provoke someone to be angry is to be angry yourself and, and project that anger towards them. And it, it says later, of course, in 1 Timothy, it compares the elder, um, and it says if he can't uh, rule his own house well and have his children in submission, how is he going to lead the church well? You can just see a father angry uh, and abusive towards his kids and that household being in complete disarray And the more he yells, the worse it gets. And so it is in the church. It's very similar. But um, there's some versions that actually um, don't have the the phrase in 1 Timothy. It doesn't say not violent. It actually, they put in the word peaceable. And I like that um, because it shows the other side of the coin, as it were, He's not violent. He's not a bully. He's actually peaceable. Someone who's peaceful demonstrates peace uh, in their own lives and is a peacemaker towards others. And that's a real challenge Um, (laughs) for someone to go into a situation where maybe two other parties are angry and have asked for help, have asked for arbitration, to go into that situation and to not choose sides and be angry with someone, but to make peace between two parties who have grievances against each other. That's very hard to do. Um, But that's indeed what the elder is called to do, and I'm sure that our elders here many times have done that very thing. 
um, and arbitrating between two parties. And you can just imagine if that person had a tendency towards anger and was in the middle of a quarrel between two angry parties, how he might fall into that same trap and be angry towards both, either one or both of them and lose all chance of actually restoring unity in that situation. So you can see how important this, uh, this peaceable trait or this not violent trait is to an elder. <clears throat> All right, the next one in, uh, at the end of verse 3, um, or, or in the middle of verse 3, sorry, um, not greedy for money. Um, that one's pretty self-explanatory, someone who's not greedy, right, trying to take more than they deserve. Um, but also I want to point out a passage. Um, Paul circles back around to this, actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want to read uh, this uh, section uh, as further uh, uh, expansion on the topic. Where Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." And just reading this section, you can see all the traps that uh, a love for money and a pursuit of money above other things um, would cause an elder um, or anyone in the church to fall into. Um, it mentions in verse 9, um, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's not a very good description of an elder, is it? <laughs> to fall into temptation and snares and uh, destruction and perdition? <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good scenario for anyone, much less a leader, to be caught up in all those things. And it says uh, in verse 10 about the love of money, it says, For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You can see here that a, uh, a passion and a pursuit of money above all else, else um, not only can ruin someone's standing in the church, but indeed cause them to stray from the faith entirely and to give up everything that it means to be a Christian, to give up everything that sets them apart from the world. And it says... As a result of that, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You've heard the uh, illustration given of the, uh, someone once asked a rich man, you know, how much money is enough? And they said a little more or one more dollar as the illustration goes. That's just it. It's never enough. If you've got two million, you want three. If you've got two billion, you'll want three billion. Right? Just a little more. There's no enough with money when it comes to pursuing that. It is not an end of itself. And there's many solemn warnings throughout scriptures, um, dozens of them just in the Proverbs, 
uh, about warning uh, against searching too much for money and worshiping that as your God instead of the Lord. <clears throat> and obviously for an elder in the church who's leading and being an example to everyone, um, one of the things that draws a church closest together is when people spend time together, right? And fellowship and hospitality, serving one another. And if the elder is not participating with the rest of the church because he's working 80 hours a week at his job, or if the rest of the saints fall in that same practice, there'll be no unity amongst the body because no one will have any time to spend with anyone else because they're all chasing that almighty dollar. And you could see how quickly a church could fall apart by chasing after that one dollar more instead of serving one another and building each other up in love and unity. It's a, it's a very wise thing that Paul includes in uh, his word to Timothy here. Don't, don't charge men who seek after money with leadership. All right, uh, continuing in verse 3. The next one, we get a positive attribute this time. It says gentle. And when I started thinking about this word gentle, I was remembering um, a few weeks ago, remember we talked about the character of women and how the Lord prizes greatly a gentle and quiet spirit, it says, which is very precious in the heart of God. Well, guess what? That challenging character is not just to women, it's also to men. Men are to be gentle as well. And um, we talked earlier about uh, a father who might demonstrate anger in his home and how destructive that is. But think of on the other uh, opposite end of that spectrum, that father who demonstrates fairness and gentleness and care and compassion towards his children how positively that family will work because of the, the father's gentleness. And um, we don't want to confuse gentleness with weakness. And there's been some great sermons preached here in the, the past about gentleness and meekness. Someone who's gentle does not forget to take a stand for the truth. Even though it may be easier to say, oh, you know, this situation, you know, is bad, but it, you know, it'll resolve itself. I just won't get in here. That's not what a gentle person does. A gentle person still gets in there and stands for the truth, but they do it in a gentle and loving and caring way, building each other up. And I was thinking uh, about the illustration of the church as a body. And um, say you have a, a finger that uh, has maybe been injured or it's weaker than the other fingers. Well, if, the, if it's there, you don't just chop off that finger because it's weak, right? That's not what the body does. The body builds it up. It sends more nutrients, more blood flow to that affected finger, and, it, and it's able to heal because of the added nutrients and sustenance that it's receiving from the rest of the body. And so gentleness demonstrates itself that way as well towards someone who's uh, weaker or having trouble. It's not that that person gets cut off. It's that they're built up in love uh, with a gentle touch. And the, 
The best nurses we know are the, are the gentle ones who wrap the bandages gently. And I think of the illustration of a mother, you know, I'll, I'll kiss it better. There's plenty of uh, kisses planted on the outside of Band-Aids that may have done more to soothe that child's ser- uh, wound than the, uh, the Band-Aid itself. And I think of that when I think of someone who's gentle in their relationships with others. Of course, not, not compromising on the truth, but not compromising on love either and demonstrating a gentle character. And again, the illustration of the shepherd, right? Shepherding the sheep, gently correcting them and showing them the right way to go. Firmly to make them not fall into the danger, firmly enough to keep them out of danger, but gentle enough to not hurt the sheep. And uh, the next one, not quarrelsome, goes right along with that and also along with the not violent that was mentioned earlier. If you remember back uh, in the first chapter of Timothy, Paul was talking to Timothy and he says there's all these quarrels that are going on within the church about genealogies and fables and false doctrine and so on. And it's very easy when someone says something that's not true, you go, nuh-uh, right? And you start a quarrel that fast. (laughs) It's very easy to do that. But a leader in the church is specifically called to not be quarrelsome. In other words, if there's a debate going on, stand for the truth, but don't get caught up in all the name-calling and anger and pointing of fingers. The uh, right way to handle a dispute is gently, firmly, to calm the situation down, and I say, look, these things may not matter. If it's in the case of genealogies or these fables, you can say, look, these, these things really don't matter. What are we fighting over this for? What matters is the gospel. What matters is the word of God. What matters is building the church up in unity and love towards one another. So if you can put a quarrel aside, that's the best thing to do. Not, not leaving it simmering, but resolving it peaceably. And especially for a leader who's going to be, he's going to be the person that everyone goes to. Hey, we can't agree on this. Or what does this verse mean? I think it means one thing. You think it means another thing. Leaders are called to uh, lend their input into disputes of all sorts. And for a leader to be one who's prone to quarreling, who's prone to choosing sides and going at it hammer and tongs. It's just really not going to build the the church up. And so a leader must know how to let the Lord, through His Word, do the talking rather than his own personal opinion or anger. And then uh, the last one in verse 3, not covetous which goes along right after that um, exhortation to not be greedy for money. That's greedy for gaining things that he himself tries to grasp onto. And covetousness is coveting the things of others, what other people have. And it's one of the original Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or his house. I forget exactly how it goes. His house, his donkey, anything. It sums it all up at the end. It says, anything that's your neighbor's, don't covet those things. And you can see how 
quickly an elder might fall away from his uh, right position of leadership by desiring what other people have and to saying things behind their back. Oh, they've got a new car. How come they don't give more to the church? And so on and so forth. That covetousness might spill out in all sorts of different ways that could really turn into backbiting and he could lose a lot of testimony very quickly uh, as a leader of the church just with a few little comments. So as an elder, that elder is responsible to God for the, for the state of his flock. And if he's constantly comparing himself to other people in the church rather than keeping his eyes fixed on the Lord and saying, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what I'm aiming for. If he aims for anything else, is distracted by any possessions of any other members in the church, that could really have a detriment uh, to, his, to his walk with the Lord and to his influence in the church. And I think um, based on some of the other passages in Tim- Timothy, when it talks about um, people adorning themselves in fine apparel and so on and so forth, I think at the, the church in Ephesus, there was probably uh, a fair num- uh, or a fair disparity, as it were, in wealth. There was probably some really rich people that went to the church and some fairly poor people that went to the church. And if an elder is lusting after the, the goods of the richer people, um, he may be one of the poorer people that's at the church, but by calling, he's appointed an elder. If he's lusting after the things that the wealthy members of that church have, he could be of no effect as an elder towards ministering towards the spiritual needs because of uh, his greed. And uh, Paul talks as well um, to the Corinthian church at, about his um, desire to not let any physical possessions get in the way of his spiritual work. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 7, he says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And I want to issue a little bit of a clarification on verse 8. Paul didn't steal money from other churches, but as it were, he, were, he was robbing them and taking money that they gave to him and not ministering to them, but ministering to the Corinthians. And it wasn't that the other churches were unwilling that those funds be used to minister to the saints. But by comparison, because he wasn't ministering to them, it was, he calls it robbery, as it were. Um, so in verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Paul sets an example here for a church leader who's going in and sharing the gospel. He says, I didn't want money issues and my support while I was ministering here to be, an, to be made an issue. And so um, we know that Paul labored as a tent maker in, a, in order to avoid being a burden to the church to support him. And indeed, he received gifts from the church in Macedonia in order that he might continue his ministry there. Um, he was so far away from letting a love of money uh, describe himself that he was willing to work 
probably all hours of, the, of day and night in order that he might minister to the church and not be a burden to them at all. And that's the sort of spirit you're looking for in a leader in the church. You're looking for someone that says these material things, that's not what I'm about. I'm content. I'm, I have godliness with contentment, and that's great gain to me. I don't need all the physical trappings um, that he even might be uh, entitled to receiving uh, monetary ministry from the saints. But he says, I, I lay all that aside in order that I might present the gospel to you more fully. And in, so, uh, in like manner, the elders of a church ought to be setting an example of the, mon- the monetary stuff doesn't matter to me. What matters is the health of the congregation. And if money is going to be a dispute amongst you, I'd rather lay that all aside than to cause anyone to stumble or to be covetous towards anyone. I, I don't want that sin in my life. It's not about money. It's about the spiritual work in the assembly. And uh, finally, in uh, verses 4 and 5, there's the, uh, the final exhortation to elders it says, to, for them to be qualified, it says he has to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Bill points out in his commentary an interesting uh, note on verse 5. He said there's a, there's a difference in the first part of the verse and the second part. It says, If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, the elder is not a parent of the assembly in the sense that he rules over the family. He takes care of the church of God. So it sets a distinction between the ruling and the taking care of. He's a shepherd towards the church, but he's the head of the family. And so there's a distinction there, and so there can't be an elder who's a dictator and telling people what to do, just like it doesn't work in a, in a home, uh, it can't work in a church as well, but even more so because the pastor or elder is called to, um, it's called the pastor to shepherd the flock, and uh, a real dictator is not going to work. But it talks about in all areas, it says, he who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. The way that the children behave of a man who's in leadership is a, uh, is a great commentary on who he is towards his family at home, right? Your family knows you best. They understand you the best. And if a, the family is in good order, the children are obedient and submissive to their parents as they're commanded to in uh, Ephesians. Um, it shows that the elder really knows how to put forth a godly example and to lead well. And that makes him well qualified to be a leader in the church if he knows how to lead by good example. And on, on, the, on the other side of that, if the children of someone who wants to be in leadership are in complete chaos all the time and destructive and uh, out of control and disrespectful towards their parents, it really says of that person they don't know how 
to lead people. They don't know how to be a good example. They don't know how to arbitrate disputes. They don't know how to take a stand for what's right and exercise proper discipline. All of these things, if the kids are out of control, these are all failings of the parents. And um, notice this is talking, of course, about children. It's, it's, an elder is not disqualified if his adult children choose their own path um, after they're no longer under their father's headship. But for young children who are under their, um, their parents' leading, um, it really does say a lot about the, the skill of the parents in leading by the behavior of the children. The parents set the tone. They're the ones who uh, dictate what's going on in the household. And you can really tell a lot about someone by how they do it. And you can see how that would also impact the church. Um, if, the, uh, if the kids of an elder are unruly, someone in the church say, why should I listen to what the elder says? His own kids don't even listen to him. And they'd be right. Um, it's really uh, a high calling. The, parent, the calling of a parent, of course, is a very high calling. And it's a very difficult task. But so is the calling of an elder and being a leader in the church. It's very difficult. And the Lord expects a lot of the elders that lead the church. Um, we already looked at a lot of leadership uh, attributes last, last week. Um, that an elder is to have and to, to demonstrate. Um, it says that the elder, uh, verse in, uh, back in verse 2, it says he has to be of good behavior. Well, if an elder's kids aren't of good behavior, <laughs> it doesn't suggest much that the elder himself is of good behavior. And the church really is like a family in a lot of ways in that just as the parents set the tone for the church, so the elders oftentimes set the tone for the, the spiritual health and well-being of the assembly. And of course, it's a, little, it's a little bit different because there's a lot of adults in a church. We're not all kids. Um, and there are, of course, those who come into a church and try and be sub, subversive and to create problems. Um, so it's not a perfect picture, but it does speak a lot about an elder's ability to lead um, in the church by his demonstration of leadership towards kids. And uh, I think of uh, <laughs> Howard exhorting uh, um, some of the brothers here, work with kids. If you want to be a good, effective teacher, he's told me this a couple times uh, with preaching. He says, Sam, he says, you want to learn how to get good illustrations? Work with kids. <laughs> You get all sorts of good stuff from them, and it's true. Um, so thank you, Howard, for that, uh, for that wisdom and guidance there. But it's, it's really true how you uh, interact with kids and teach them and encourage them. Adults are kind of big kids in a lot of ways, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe I'm just speaking about myself. I don't know. But the same things that motivate a kid still motivate me a lot of the time. An encouragement, an encouraging word saying, well done, That's, that builds me up. A word saying, hey, Sam, you did the wrong thing there, but you can do better next time, and here's how. Worked as a kid, and hopefully if I'm still teachable, it works on me now. And the same uh, 
The same thing should be demonstrated by an elder, whether he's dealing with uh, children trying his patience or grown-up members of the church trying his patience. Um, it should be uh, demonstrated the same way. I was talking just yesterday um, to some uh, folks that I, I met with that were talking about they went into this church and um, they uh, got into this, they were in this situation where there was some trouble, some disagreement between them and uh, someone else at the church, um, something hurtful that had been done. And they went to that person and they said, look, you know, you're doing this thing, it's really hurting me, it's, our, it's affecting my ability to be part of the body. And that person was unrepentant. And so they went to the elders and they said, look, here's what's going on. Could you please uh, arbitrate in this matter? And the elder did nothing. And it, it would have it almost been uh, better if the elder had said, you know, I won't help you, you know, please go find somewhere else. Like at least then they would have known, like, okay, this is not where I should be. But right after they joined the church, to just have an elder say, I see what your problem is, thank you very much for telling me, and then do nothing. I mean, you could see what would happen if one kid punched another kid, you know, three, four years old, and then the one comes, he punched me, and then the parent goes, hmm, walks away. You know, what sort of damage is that going to lead to just in the relationship between those two young siblings? How much more in a church if the elder is not willing to take a stand for the truth and say, yes, here's what the scripture says about this situation. You're wrong. You know, there needs to be restoration here. It's just like dealing with kids. It's not any, uh, any different in that regard. Um, and so we need, our, we need our elders to be good leaders. We need good leaders in the church. And furthermore, um, all of the members of the church would do well to listen to these character traits, their requirements, their must-haves for leadership. But let me tell you, if you make them must-haves in your own life, you'll benefit a lot by demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit and freeing yourself from any uh, addiction to alcohol or tendency towards violence or quarrelsomeness or troublemaking um, or greed, or uh, anything like that. All these things are things that we should really lay aside um, in order to promote love and unity in the body, in order to be well-pleasing to our Savior who loved us and died for us. How shall we say, I'm a follower of Christ, if you're demonstrating anger in your life, or if you're demonstrating greed toward... Uh, towards, uh, towards money and selling out everything uh, that is really of value in order to pursue something that you can't take with you. Uh, I heard a, a speaker at, at Mike, uh, Mike Atwood at Yosemite. He says, all these people, he says, that build up these businesses, he says, none of it's going to survive the fire. And of course, he was talking, uh, this world is going to be burned up, every last bit of it, the, and the Heaven's dissolved with fervent heat. Nothing's going to survive that. So what are we laboring towards? Are we laboring towards real fruits of the Spirit? Are we laboring towards building up the body and love and saying, 
I'm going to strengthen that weaker member. I'm going to come alongside another strong person in order that I might be built up myself. Um, all these things really positively uh, impact the body. And I just I think of um, like our chapel picnics and all the conversations that we have there. Um, those are really sweet times to me as a believer because I can talk to someone that I might only have you know, a limited time on, on Sunday mornings. Like, I can sit down grab my hot dog and say, hey, brother or sister, what's going on in your life? Are there coworkers of yours that I can pray for? You know, how are your mom and dad doing? And just those things where you share those values and come alongside, um, there's no better than or anything like that. We're all equal before the sight of the Lord, and those times of fellowship are sweet. And that's what we really need to build up the, the body. And those, um, that gentle, quiet concern um, that we see here in these verses um, amongst many of the other attributes, it can all really build up the body, and that's what we're all called to do. So build one another up with these words. Take, these, take this challenge of good, godly character seriously, and um, we'll see what the Lord does with this church if we, all t- if we all take these words seriously and challenge ourselves to spend time in His Word, letting His Spirit speak speak into our hearts and building us up that we might better serve Him. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank You that You lay out in Your Word the expectations that we should have of church leadership. And Lord, we don't want to forget to take on the challenge of this in our own lives. Yes, these are mandatory things for our leadership, but Lord, they're Your character attributes. They're things that we should all strive after. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take this challenge upon ourselves to be peacemakers, to be blameless, to have good behavior, to avoid violence or anything that would give cause uh, for, us, for others to speak against you. Um, Lord, we, uh, we pray for good, godly Christian character uh, to be a focus of this assembly and our love for you because, Lord, we're yours. We're bought with a price. We are not our own. And Lord, we pray that we may honor you this week as we go about our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.